Well, thank you for being here. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We have looked at the last several weeks, at, or a couple of weeks ago we looked at uh, Mark chapter 1 and 2, and we were looking at Jesus' ministry. Last week uh, we were in here and we were looking at the famous Christmas account, looking at Luke chapter 2. And there's one more Christmas scene that I, when Pastor Jay asked me to speak tonight, um, that really struck me that we, I don't know, if, I don't know how many of you have heard sermons on this, but I was struck by studying out Matthew chapter 2, which is of course in the first several verses, the story of the wise men. And I think um, the wise men always strike me as odd just because I think their inclusion in the Bible is an odd thing, but it's also odd to me um, the fact that our nativity scenes all over the world, all over America are woefully unbiblical. <laughs> Because we include the wise men at the manger. And I'm not saying that you're sinning if you're putting your wise men there. I'm not trying to say that or that it's somehow sinful that you put your wise men there because you buy your nativity set and it seems silly to throw out the wise men. But just know that the the wise men probably, most likely, as we're going to see here tonight, weren't there at the manger when Jesus was born. That's... I don't know where that tradition started. I don't know how it happened to where we decided... Let's just include everyone there <laughs> and, and sell nativity sets like this. So I don't know where that came from, but as we're going to see tonight and investigate, as we investigate the wise men, even as I did my own study on this, I was fascinated with how much of what we think about these wise men is mostly based in extra-biblical tradition. It's not based in the Bible. It's based just in church history, uh, legends, stories about these quote-unquote wise men that came from the East. Um, and that's kind of what I want to do tonight. I want to look at these wise men who came. I want to ask just some, you know, investigative questions. The who and the where and the, and the what and the when and the why. Why, why were these guys coming here at all? What was their purpose and, and what were they doing on this journey and where do they come from and who were they? I want to ask these questions and I think we're going to see something I think truly remarkable in this text. So, very quickly, let's read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 2, and then we'll jump in. The scripture says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they had saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And then they were come into the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So the first I want to ask these two questions is who and where? Who were these wise men and where did they come from? Well, if you uh, remember that Carol, we three kings of Orient are, you would imagine that these guys are not just wise men, they're kings. And they're not just kings from anywhere, they're kings from the Orient. And there's not just one of them, there's three of them. <laughs> and all of that, I have to say and tell you and admit to you, that's conjecture. <laughs> we don't know if they were kings, we don't know if they were from the Orient, and, and we don't know if they, uh, there were three of them. <laughs> uh, all of that is conjecture, mostly from some Old Testament prophecies. If you read Isaiah 60 and verse 3, and then another verse in Psalm 72 and verse 10, there's some prophecies of some kings coming to worship. Actually, I'll, I'll just flip and read Isaiah 60 verse 3, just so you can get a sense of it. Um, Isaiah 63 is one that promises that kings will come and bow down and worship Jesus. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. And it seems to me that um, we have used verses like this and other verses to kind of uh, elaborate on what's happening here. And even though those verses aren't, I don't think, predictive of the wise men, they are predictive of something bigger, which we'll see in a moment. But did you know also, I didn't know this personally, uh, that we have named the wise men. That these three wise men actually have names that have been passed down through history. I didn't know this at first. Uh, I didn't really realize that this was a thing. But apparently one of them is named Melkor, and he is from Persia. There's another one who is named Casper, and he's from India. And there's another one named Balthazar, excuse me, Balthazar, who is from Arabia. And they've given them all these backstories. You can see them in famous Christian paintings throughout the centuries. You'll see most of them with uh, Melkor being an older, sort of wiser, uh, more aged uh, wise man, and then you have Casper being a sort of middle-aged, and then Balthazar, I can't say his name, sorry. <laughs> He's sort of a younger sort of wise man. And they each have their particular gifts and why they bring them and all these sorts of things. But that only really works if there's three of them. And again, <laughs> those uh, names kind of surfaced later. I think they surfaced around six, five or 600 AD. So that's five or 600 years after the birth of Christ. All of these names started to come about in legends and stories about this event. Obviously, they're not mentioned in scripture. <laughs> um, Matthew never numbers the wise men. Do you notice that? We only get their numbers based on the numbers of gifts that we get in verse 11 where it says, and they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the only reason why we have three wise men in our nativity sets and why there's three named wise men in our history books <laughs> because of these three gifts. And the inference is only based on these things that they present him. He never numbers them. And what I think is actually really fascinating is that Matthew, as he's writing this gospel, he doesn't give them any more details other than that. <laughs> that they were wise men from the east. That's all he gives you to go on. And I think, because as we'll see, he doesn't want them to get the forefront of our attention. He doesn't want them to steal the show, so to speak. But they only get this amount of detail. Wise men from the east in verse 1. That's all we know about them. 
You know, I think it's likely that there wasn't, there was more, definitely more than three. I imagine there being about a dozen or so. You have a couple wise men with definitely some servants and some aides, some people with them. It was a caravan of people coming from the east, wherever that was, and then coming over to Jerusalem, looking and following this star. And I think if we get caught up on these names, get caught up on these numbers, we can kind of miss, I think, what Matthew's doing. What we can know, though, is wise men, what that means, because it's, it's a Greek word, magi, you've probably heard of that before, that word before, or magos, where we derive our words magic or magician from. And really, the, the magi were an influential school of teachers and philosophers and people who studied religion, people who studied the stars, people who studied medicine. They were they were very, very, very smart. They were also very, very influential people in kingdoms. And in fact, the word magi is the same word in the Greek translation of the book of Daniel. And the people who would come up to Nebuchadnezzar and trying to interpret his dream, those were the magi of Babylon. And Daniel eventually, because he could interpret dreams so well, he became the leader of the magi. So we can see here that... Um, it's most likely, it, that's where a lot of uh, the conjecture lies and where they came from. It's most likely Babylon because of that term uh, and what it came to mean. And these guys were employed as counselors, advisors to the king because of what they knew. They were, stu- they were studiers of astrology. They were studying the constellations and putting them into different sort of prophecies and texts. They were studying all sorts of old types of religious uh, texts and books and they were just and they were studiers of the law and these guys were frequently went to when a king had a question about something because they would probably know and here uh so we so we have these these let's call them magicians these magis these guys coming from the east maybe from babylon maybe from persia and they're coming over to jerusalem so that's our who and our where we have to also ask what what were they doing on this journey because um, you have to think about these guys. We know, okay, we know that the Magi are astrologers. They're studying stars. They're putting them in constellations, tracking their coordinates and stuff with the limited amount of resources they, they could do that with back in those days. And yet here they are, and they have seen this star, and they have decided to follow it. They haven't just decided to track it. They've actually decided to follow this star. So obviously we have to uh, just imagine that this star, whatever it was, was an exceptionally unusual star. It wasn't like anything that they had seen before. People, and this is, again, we get a lot of conjecture on this point about what this star was. Some people believe it was Halley's Comet or it was a combination of Jupiter and Saturn doing something and aligning and creating this bright, bright aura in space, in, in, which is actually recorded in history, by the way. And some people believe that it was actually the, the pillar of fire from back in the Old Testament that led the Israelites through the wilderness. It was come back down again, which was God's glory in, in physical form. Some believe it was that, and that it was just mis, misrepresented as a quote-unquote star. I don't know what it was, and I don't think that's the point. <laughs> because what's actually, what's most amazing about this whole thing is that regardless of whether it was a star up in the heavens that they had followed, or whether it was some supernatural star, <laughs> what's the point? God's hand 
was guiding these gentlemen, these wise men from the east to this point in Jerusalem. And he was doing it in a supernatural way for a supernatural purpose to prove that he's sovereign over everything. (laughs) His hand is not limited. His hand is not shortened, as the prophet says in the Old Testament. Whatever the star was, God's hand was behind it. He was leading it. He was leading them. These Gentile men, he was leading them to Jerusalem to go see this person that they thought that was supposedly the king of the Jews. God is sovereign over stars. They were following the star and God was sovereign over it. He led them through all of that desert country that they traversed over because God is the one who put the stars in their place. So God can stop them in their tracks if he wants to. God is absolutely and completely sovereign over what is happening in this chapter and what is happening in the chapter of our lives as well. The point of the star, we can get belabored by it and trying to figure out what its mystical meaning is and what it might have been and and trying to figure out what it looked like when we have to realize this is a proof of God's sovereignty. He was sovereign over the wise men and their decision to go on this journey. And he's sovereign over the fact that he is leading them to the very spot where an unlikely baby was born. Who is, and he's going to prove that that baby was the king of the Jews. So they're going on this journey. These magicians, these stargazers from Babylon. But when did they make it? This kind of goes, when did they make this journey? When, when did this happen? This question kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is why we don't believe that the uh, wise men were at the birth of Jesus. Look at verse, uh, if you're in Matthew 2, look at verse 16, where we see, um, well, look at verse 12, because the, the, the wise men are warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. Because as you know, Herod, he had pretended that he wanted to worship baby Jesus, but then... He was doing it under false pretenses. He actually wanted to get rid of him. And so they're warned of him. They departed into their own country another way. Then jump down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. He was really, really mad. (laughs) And sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. I think from this decree of Herod, this violent decree of him wanting to rid Bethlehem and all the surrounding areas of of children under the age of two years old, two years old and under, um, it's kind of indicative of the fact that Jesus was a little bit older at this point. If you actually, though, look at the word in, um, let's see, where is it? Uh, Verse 9, when the star stops above the house where Mary is, and until it came and stood over where the young child was, that last phrase in verse 9. Young child uh, in the Greek is actually a word that can mean, you know, a toddler, or it can actually mean uh, an infant, a few months old. So it's safe to assume Jesus is maybe six months to two years old at this point. He, this is not directly after uh, the birth, but it's also a little bit afterwards. And Herod, Herod is driven mad by this news of this newborn king, as we know, where it says in verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, these, this news of the king of the Jews, which is born in Bethlehem, he was troubled. 
reading some history books about Herod is actually interesting because apparently Herod, he is a much older man at this point, and he had been ruling for a long, great, great length of time. And he was actually had grown uh, like almost like conspiracy theorist and almost schizophrenic to the point where he was afraid of anyone and everything trying to attack his rule, attack his throne. So much so that he eventually murdered his wife and several of his sons because he suspected them of trying to take away his authority. He was a madman, a crazy madman. He was uh, one who was just driven by the fact that he did not want to give up his authority. He wanted to stay on the throne that was given to him by the Roman government. Therefore, um, when he hears about this king of the Jews, the Jews that he was overruling, you can imagine that he was worried that this king of the Jews who had been rumored and through these old mystical Old Testament texts to unite the Jews and uh, overthrow the Roman government, which was a thing that was going around at the time, you can imagine his stress levels probably went up uh, several, several notches. <laughs> He's worried about this uprising. There was a rumor actually going around. If you read some of the old, old historians, there was uh, people who had done some crazy math or something had, had there was a rumor going around that someone was going to be born at this time that was going to unite the Jews and overthrow the Roman government which is why a lot of the people when Jesus was crucified were upset because they thought that he was the Messiah and he didn't overthrow the Roman government anyways so he uh, Herod again, excuse me, back to Herod. Herod. Herod, he gathers his wise men, he gathers his own wise men in verse 4, and he has them read all the Old Testament text and say, where is this, this Messiah? Where is he promised to be born? Oh, it's six miles down the road in Bethlehem. And so he sends these wise men from the east on a secret mission to go and tell them the exact location so that he can go and kill this king of the Jews. And he's, he's basically employing the wise men here as spies. And as we know from verse 12, these wise men are warned of God to not go back to Herod uh, because they're warned uh, about his nefarious ways. And obviously this doesn't sit well with Herod. He's greatly upset by this. He's, as it says in verse 16, again, he's exceeding wrath. He's really, really mad. And he was really cruel in his old age. And so now he orders all these young kids to be murdered. And it's actually one historian, I think it was Josephus, who says that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. <laughs> because you never know when he might just decide to kill you. <laughs> Herod was a violent man. And this, his inquiry, though, the inquiry, look at verse uh, number 7 where it says, when he had privily called the wise men, privately, secretly met with these wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star had appeared. And that inquiry is what leads him to believe in verse 16 that Jesus was around two years old. That's why he sets that age uh, for all the kids to be massacred. He's probably around that age. That's about the time that these wise men made their journey. Is what's really fascinating is that even at Jesus' age, the proof here is the fact, again, Jesus is sovereign. Even as an infant baby, Jesus is ruling what's going on because, yes, he is in uh, bodily form. He's God in bodily form, but he is not without all the vastness of his deity. 
He is still in control. He is still on his throne. God's sovereignty is not stunted or stopped by a human frame. Which leads us to ask, why do we learn about the wise men? Why are they included here? What's the purpose of them coming? And what's the purpose of, them, of us reading about them 2,000 odd years later? What's, what's the deal with these wise men? And I think the answer to that is found when we realize the, the gospel of Matthew's objective and also when we recognize what Jesus' purpose was in coming. Because if you remember, uh, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the gospels and how each of them presents a different angle of Jesus' life and ministry. One which presents Jesus as a servant, one which presents Jesus as a savior, one which presents Jesus as God. And Matthew here, his presentation of Jesus was as a king. He's writing to Jews. He's writing to people for whom Jesus had come. And he's saying, this child, this guy who eventually you murdered, he was your king. He was your true and better king. This entire scene, I think, is to show that very thing, that Christ was that promised and predicted Messiah from long ago, way back in Micah 5 or in Isaiah 9 or all throughout your Old Testament is leading to this very point in history. This was Matthew's theme throughout the gospel is that Jesus is the true and better king and everyone, everywhere, people from all nations and from all tongues are going to eventually one day come and recognize that Jesus is Lord. That's where it says in Philippians 2 that every knee shall bow. One day that's going to happen. And this is what the wise men did with their bowing and their presented, presenting gifts. Now, the gifts are interesting too because a lot of theologians like to apply spiritual meanings to all of the gifts that they give. Like gold means, uh, represents Jesus' kingship. And frankincense represents Jesus' priesthood. And the myrrh represents Jesus' resurrection. Now, I can be confident in saying I don't think that the wise men knew anything about that when they were giving him gifts. This, I think the wise men were giving the gifts to this person that they thought was a king, that they had somehow realized that this, this promised king was born. They were giving him gifts as was their custom. It was a customary thing for when you met a king or a dignitary, someone of great, great high honor, you would present them gifts. So they were doing something as was their custom. Those extra meanings... I think are for us, perhaps. Because even as he's presented myrrh, we're made to realize what myrrh was, which was a, in a, in a spice especially used in, when you embalmed a dead body, which should make you think of Jesus' resurrection, which makes you think of what Jesus had come to do. That this baby born in a manger had come to die. And yes, frankincense was especially used in temple worship. So it could make you think of the priesthood and how Jesus is the true and better priest as the writer of Hebrews talks about and how Jesus is the one who puts away all of those Old Testament rituals and rites of ceremony because he is the priest that puts away that law forever. And yes, we can think of gold as representing Jesus' kingship because he is the true and better king. And again, as, we, as I said, as Philippians 2 verse 10 and 11 say, that he uh, is the true and better king of the world. And one day, every knee is going to bow. But I think those meanings are for us. I don't think the Magi knew about that. 
Their worship of Christ, I think though, demonstrates the, the vastness again of God's sovereignty. That these Gentile men coming from the east, following a star that they were exceptionally curious about, they're for us to read 2,000 years later to know the fact that even as Jesus was a baby, Jesus was sovereign. Even as he was a child, he was a king. And he was ruling on a throne, a throne that was not like we think of. It was a throne that was a manger. This entire scene here, these verses in Matthew 2, are meant to show that God's initiative, God's sovereign initiative in our lives, He is never without control in our lives. I don't know about you, but 2018 has been a raucous year. (laughs) Raucous in a bad way. (laughs) A year filled with a lot of trouble, a lot of crying, a lot of heartache. A lot of times (laughs) when I thought... God, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing in this season of life? And I have to remember, nothing is ever out of God's control. And nothing ever happens by accident. Yes, there are accidents in our world because of the fall of man and the brokenness of sin, but God is sovereign even through those accidents. And he can bring even accidents that are bad into things that are good for his glory. And I think what this story shows us is that very fact. And in fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher over in London, uh, way back in the 1800s, he said that when he was describing this scene in this chapter, he said that it's basically sovereignty clothed in the robes of mercy. Because even as Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes and being held by his mother Mary, He's ruling and he's reigning. He's sovereign over every single facet of life. He's sovereign over every single thing that happens in this story. This entire scene is a fulfillment of promises. Isaiah 53, that famous Christological chapter from the Old Testament, tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. And I think this very chapter and throughout the rest of Jesus' life we see that. That he wasn't just a man of sorrows on the cross but his sorrow started when he was in that manger. It started from the cradle. (laughs) He was a man of sorrows from his infancy because we have to realize no one came to adore Jesus except for some filthy shepherds and some really strange wise men. And that kind of reminds us from John chapter 1 verses 10-11 where it says he came unto his own but his own received him not. He was right here where he was supposed to be. And who comes to visit him? Oh, come all ye faithful. The faithful that come are wise men from the east, not his Jewish brethren, who should have known better. Not even these scribes. (laughs) You think about the scribes. These guys are studiers of the law. They have actually memorized all of the first five books of the Old Testament. They've put them to memory. And yet they are the ones who are not only... uh, trying to ravage their minds on where this Jesus was supposed to be born, but they don't even lift a finger to go and see if it's actually true. I think that's really fascinating. That Herod's scribes don't even have anything to do with Jesus. They don't go to him. It's some shepherds and some magi guys from the east. (laughs) He came to his own and his own received him not. And his sorrow continued because as we know in verses 13 through 15 in Matthew 2, Jesus' life was put in immediate danger 
as this decree goes out that Herod wants to kill all these babies. And so they flee off to Egypt and they are safe there through another sovereign act of God. But the great fulfillment, I think, is what, again, as we've been referencing, is of these wise men, is what they're prefiguring and what will one day come, as we have said. Actually, I'm just going to read those verses so I don't mess them up. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing about Jesus' incarnation, those great incarnation verses from that chapter. And he says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This one day will happen. Whether you believe in Jesus or whether you don't believe in Jesus, whether you are saved or unsaved, there will come a day when you will recognize that Jesus is King. And on that day, perhaps if you are unsaved, that day will be too late. That's what Jesus is proving here. That's what this is showing us here, that the time is now. The time of grace is right now. Because there will come a day, whether you believe it or not, whether you recognize it or not, that every knee will bow. And I think that's what we see in these wise men. (laughs) It's prefiguring, it's foreshadowing that one day when people from all nations, all tongues, will confess that not just Jesus is Lord, He's Lord over all. He's sovereign over everything. He's the true and better King. This is what Matthew kind of spends his time on to show us. And actually he would spend it for the rest of his book, showing us that Jesus is king. You put your faith in Herod, you are foolish. Put your faith in this baby Messiah. You put your faith in leaders of the day, you're putting your faith in something that's empty and hopeless. Put your faith in the sovereign King Christ. He's the one who is working and ordaining and ruling everything according to his purposes. Because this baby in a manger that we celebrate, he's also the king of creation. And he can control the stars. He can stop them in their tracks. He can do as he pleases because he is the sovereign king, the creator, the redeemer. These wise men are showing us God's power is just unlimited. It has no boundaries. It has no borders. And even as Jesus is in that, uh, that form of utter weakness, an infant, a baby, that can't control its own head. <laughs> you have to hold, I remember when Lydia was a tiny, tiny little, little thing, and you have to hold its head because it doesn't, she didn't even have enough strength in her neck to hold her head up. That was Jesus. <laughs> even in that form of utter weakness, he was divinely sovereign. <laughs> Even as he was a little baby with tiny little fingers and the cute infant smelling head. (laughs) He was a ruler and a king with a throne, with majesty. These wise men, they prefigure that. They prefigure the fact that Jesus was a ruler. (laughs) They also show that he is sovereign over everything. I think... Above everything, the thing that I've learned in the last several months of 2018 is that God has got this. (laughs) I think that's going to be my phrase for 2019. (laughs) 
as much as I've planned and tried to put things into order, God's got this. His hand is a lot better. His plans are a lot better. His timing is a lot better. His will and His way is a lot better. He is sovereign. (laughs) Sovereign over the stars. Sovereign over these wise men. Sovereign over the nations. Sovereign over a king who issues a a census as we learned about in Luke chapter 2. Over a certain time. He is sovereign over everything. And he's willing and, and wanting everyone to know that he is the king. And the king that has come to die for his own servants. That's the majesty and the glory of of Jesus as king. Because he's not a king that rules and says, hey, come up to me and work your way up to me and earn my righteousness. He says, I'm a king and I'm going to die for your righteousness. He's a king who reverses the script on how we think authority and dictatorial rule should work because he's not a dictator. He is a savior and he's a friend. And he's our king. And he is our... (laughs) He is our brother. If you learn about what, if you read the book of of Ruth, that's where you get that great picture of Jesus as our true and better brother. (laughs) If you read about that and look at the picture of Jesus there, I've kind of gone off track. Jesus is sovereign. Even as a little baby in a manger, he was ruling and working and willing everything to how he saw fit. Even as a baby. I think that's what these wise men show us. And I think that's what we can hope in. God is sovereign. Let's pray.